And a happy Mother's Day to you all. So glad you are here worshiping with us today. My name is Caleb Smith. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, welcome to Autumn Ridge Church this morning. Uh, as uh, when I was uh, voluntold that I'd be preaching today, uh, I didn't expect that I'd really be leaning into one of our values here at Autumn Ridge. One of our values is uh, to, to lean into the messes, and, and um, that happened in two ways for me this week. One is uh, that I came down with a sinus infection on Monday, and I am still on the climb out. So you all get a little bit more of the baritone, Caleb, uh, this morning. Um, first service at 8.30, they had the bass that was definitely lower register. The other way that we lean into the message today is by having a middle-aged white man up and preaching on Mother's Day. So today's sermon title is Mansplaining Motherhood. <clears throat> Thanks, Jake. No, I'm not going to do that. <laughs> um, no, today is a day uh, where we honor you mothers. But, uh, but in every time that we, uh, that, that, that we open the Word and every time that we preach the Word, not only are there the moments like Mother's Day where you may, as a mother, really be able to take something and apply it into what it is to be a mom, uh, but it also matters that all of us uh, all of us as disciples are, either, are able to lean into the challenge of discipleship in our lives. Uh, and then for those of you in the room or those of you watching online who are not a believer yet, uh, it is the challenge of God in your life about what does it look like to actually believe in Jesus. Uh, and so there is something for everyone no matter what day it is. Uh, but for me, Mother's Day uh, and days like it, could be Father's Day, Christmas, or the like, they serve more as days of remembering. It's not so much about Mother's Day itself or the things of past Mother's Days. Uh, it's more of what it is that God's been doing in my life and in my family's life that lead us to where we are today. And, and it's a recognition of where He has been and how He has acted in our lives over time. Uh, and so, uh, I want to uh, uh, take us to Scripture and just give us a little bit uh, of, of some verses that, that demonstrate for us the practice that Scripture sets out of what it is to remember. Uh, we see this in one way from Jesus' life. He's with his disciples in a room. It's the night when he was arrested on his way to being crucified, but he's having this last meal. We call it the Last Supper with his disciples. And they're sitting around a table, and in Luke chapter 22, we read this. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me, in a way of remembering him. And, and though it may be true that every time one of them took the bread and they tore it at any meal from here on out, that they would have the remembering of this moment, uh, it also is, is Jesus setting up that it's not just about this moment, but it's everything that happens in the days that are coming, and it's everything that's in his life and everything that they've experienced over time with him that is also a part of the remembering. They're to remember him, they're to remember his work, his acts, his teachings, that are remember the things that he has set out for them as to what discipleship is. They're to do it in remembrance of him. Now, Jesus is only building on a tradition that is already set out in Scripture. 
Uh, We see it in the ways in which festivals are talked about in the Old Testament. We see it in some of the ways that the worship services are talked about. But remembering was a key part of how the nation of Israel was to go through these major events in their year. One of those ways was with altars, and we see this in Joshua chapter 4. God is leading the people of Israel out of the wilderness. They're getting ready to cross the Jordan River into the promised land, but the Jordan River is a raging river at this time, and they cannot get across it. And so God tells Joshua, take, have the priest take the Ark of the Covenant, walk down into the water, and the waters will recede. And as you walk through, have one person from each tribe, as they go through, pick up a large stone and take it to the other side. And so then Joshua is relaying this to the people, and he says this, each of you is to take up a stone on his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the Israelites, to serve as a sign among you. In the future, when your children ask you, what do these stones mean? Tell them that the flow of the Jordan was cut off before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. These stones are to be a memorial to the people of Israel forever. They're to be a memorial. But they're not setting up a a, memorial. Uh, an altar or a memorial that is like, hey, set up this memorial and make it look like Moses so that you remember who Moses was and what he did. They don't set up a memorial for Joshua to remember Joshua and who he is and what he did. God instructs them to set up a stack of stones to serve as a time when you walk by them and your children look at them, they're going to be in some way, shape, or form that children are going to look at them and go, hey, dad, why are all these stones here? And that's when you tell them about what I've done for you as a people. The remembering of God's faithfulness. Because some of the people who are crossing the Jordan River in this moment, they were born 30 years before. They were born while the people were wandering around the desert. And a part of their story of remembering is not just, yeah, we walked through this river and it was cool because the waters just went away and then we stacked these stones on the other side. That's not the end of the story. That's the surface part of the story. The, The bottom of the story is that God's faithfulness has been exhibited throughout all of that time. And so there were probably stories that were told as they walked past these stones, stories of, you know what, there were moments where we were just walking around in the desert and we didn't know where our food or our water was coming from. But God took care of us. But God's faithfulness shined through. And you know what? There's even stories before that of, of your grandparents. It's not just about these stones, but your grandparents were in this nation called Israel and they were slaves. And God performed miracles and freed them from slavery. It's about God and his faithfulness. Because memories are sometimes things that we try to forget right? You've got memories you like and feelings you try to chase after, a thing that happened here that you want to feel that again, so you try to recreate it. Those are good memories, but then there's memories of things that we don't want anymore. Memories of what somebody did to us or said to us, and we want to forget it forever. Or memories of things that we did or said to somebody else that we know hurt them, and we want to forget that we can do that kind of harm to somebody else. And of course, the interesting part about those memories is those memories are probably the memories that somebody else is trying to forget as well. But these memories are not that. 
These memories are of God and what he's done. And so this applies to me and my family as well. Twelve years ago, Rochester, Minnesota, and Autumn Ridge Church were not blips on our radar screen. And yet, God's faithfulness and the story of God's faithfulness is an example of us being here and being able to be in partnership with you all, being able to meet other brothers and sisters in Christ and to now expand that family that we understand as a family of God, to be in ministry with you on this side of heaven, to be, to be impacting our community for his word. This is my family. We did not know until after we took the pictures that my head was in the middle of the light burst. <laughs> I did not plan that one. It's my wife, Tisha. We've been married 22 years. Oldest son, Jackson, in the hat. Youngest son, Tucker, 16 and 14. Though we were having fun when we took this picture, this picture doesn't tell the whole story. It's a facade, and that's what memorials are. They become facades because they only give a, a, a description or they're there for a surface reason, but there's always stuff that's underneath, right? And so this picture is a bit, of a, a bit of a facade. We had a lot of fun taking it, but you know, I don't remember. Maybe later in the day we had to have a consequence for something that one of the boys did, one of their choices. Maybe there was a fight the next day. I don't remember. What I can tell you and what I do know is that over the past two months, the surface part of this is this picture, but underneath, man, I've just been emotionally exhausted over the past two months. I thought it was depression. I've experienced depression before, but I've, through, through, uh, through conversations with friends, through some spiritual counseling, I've realized, you know, it's not depression. I'm just emotionally tired. And what I want to do is I want to control the moment. I want to control the information, and I actually don't want to tell you because I want to be able to fix it on my own and to make it look like I know everything there is to know and I have everything put together. See, I love puzzles. I'm a puzzle freak. So if you just put the puzzle pieces on the table, I'm going to put it together, and then everything's going to be fine. It's never going to look like a puzzle was just dumped out and pieces are everywhere. But that's kind of how the last couple months have felt like inside of this head. It's not an emergency, but Tisha's having surgery on Thursday. There's stress and anxiety that comes along with that. We're trying to figure out, making sure that we've got what the boys' schedules are and what they need and transportation for them. And do we have everything that we need to help take care of Tisha? That added stress and anxiety, and in that is me. I want to take control. I want to be able to figure out all of the things. And I don't like asking for help. And, you know, all the people who have already said they're going to help us, I'm like, okay, great. I don't know what that means. Because I want to control the moment. So 12 years ago, we looked a little different. This picture looks happy. We were in a great church. We had great things going on in our life. I was doing student ministry and loving it. But what this picture doesn't tell you is that a few months before this, Tisha had an illness and they told us in our first appointment, look, this is either something that will just disappear or it's an inoperable growing brain tumor. 
Those are two options. Now we can look back on it and we can see God's faithfulness in the moment. But you know what in the moment we thought of? Not God's faithfulness. We thought of things like, why is this happening? All of the what-if questions. Things seem like they're going so well. Why is God going to just absolutely mess everything up? Why is this taking place? All of the stress and, and in this moment, absolutely the depression and the anxiety that flood in. And all I want to do is I want to control the moment and I want to figure it out. I'm a strategy fiend. Strategy is literally in my job title here. There is a strategy of how to figure out how to make our way through this. And I'm going to grab it and take control. But it took other people coming into our lives who said, hey, remember God's faithfulness over the years. It doesn't matter what happens on the other side of this information. It doesn't matter what happens on the other side of these tests. It doesn't matter what the answers are. God's faithfulness is that no matter what, he has been and he is and he forever will be. Because 10 years prior to that, these two crazy people decided to get married. I almost didn't show this picture because though Tisha looks the same, I'm fluffier. And though this picture can serve as a reminder of a really cool time in life and a really great day, at the same time, it serves as a reminder into our family that the next three years of our marriage were tough. Because see, we thought we had begun to unpack the baggage that we were both bringing into the marriage, and then we got married and we realized you don't know nothing yet. And there were a couple of months during year two when we weren't sure if we were going to make it. And all I wanted to do was to take control. All I wanted to do was to read all of those books and all of those blogs that had all of the checklists on do this, do this, do this, do this, and everything will be fine. Man, if I can just get all those boxes checked off. And the more I tried to take control, the worse it got. And it took people coming into my life and reminding me of the things that God had shown himself to be faithful and how he would continue to be faithful in our marriage if we would lean into the things that we needed to deal with. Because see, a healthy person approaches life in this way. Three columns that are separate from each other. Who I am, what I do, what is needed. This column never changes. This column always stays the same. These two columns may change depending on the season, the scenario, the context. This is where freedom of choice comes in, into our life with Christ. Because in what we do and in what is needed, we have to take responsibility for the choices that we make and the outcomes that come with those choices. This never changes. But that's not the way that I was living my life 22 years ago. 22 years ago, I lived it as if it was one big page that just had one statement. Who I am is defined by what I do. 
And so for me, that was in ministry. And in a ministry context at that time, I thought that the better I did student ministry, the more I would get recognized. I might get asked to write a book. I might get asked to speak at a, at a youth pastor conference. I might get asked to lead a breakout session. I would get youth pastors calling me and asking me for advice because of how awesome I was. And when none of those things happened, when none of those things happened, I only felt isolated, ignored, devalued. And though those feelings were real, those feelings were placed in the wrong thing. They were placed in what I was doing, and I was defining myself by that. Some of you, this may be your vice that you are constantly fighting on a daily basis. You're like me. We are constantly trying to separate that who I am and what I do are not the same thing. For some of you, it may not be that one. It may be one on this list. These are ways in which we lie to ourselves. Who I am is defined by what I do, who I'm with, how I feel, what is said about me, and what I'm afraid to lean into. One of these is probably the priority in your life. And for many of us, we probably have moments where we know that we've jumped from one to the other. Like telling you that I'm emotionally tired in this season of life, this is leaning into this. Because if I don't, all that's going to do is eat me from the inside out. And then I'm going to begin to be defined by what I'm afraid to lean into. Because, you know, I'm a pastor. Pastors don't have anything go wrong in their lives. What is your thing? At the base for all of these, for me, it's control. It all comes down to control. I'm going to grab onto it and white-knuckle my way through life holding on to control. I want to set up all the parameters around my boys' education so that they get good grades, so that they can get a good job, so that they maybe go to a good college, so that they have success in their life. I think I have control over their grades. Do I? Anyone who has had kids who are now adults will tell you the answer is no. My kids go to church. They say they love Jesus. What if in 30 years they don't go to church anymore and they say that they don't love Jesus? Do I have control over that? No. Does it affect the definition of who I am? It feels like it does, but the actual answer is no. Because it goes into their choices of what they're doing. But I want to grab every moment and keep control. The passage in Scripture that absolutely wrecks me, that forces me into the place of remembering that I am not in control, comes out of Numbers chapter 9. So prior to the people trying to cross the Jordan River, they are in the wilderness. 
They've already had a scenario where they were trying to go into the promised land the first time that God wanted to take them there. Two guys, a whole group of them went in, they spied, they went in, they came back. Two of them said, you know what, we got this only because God's with us and he's in control, so he's going to do this. Just an aside, one of those guys was named Caleb. So, <laughs> The other guys said, heck no, we can't do it. They were gripped by fear, and they wanted to keep control of the situation. And so they said, it's not going to happen. So all of the people followed those guys. And because they disobeyed, they had to own the choice and the responsibility of their choice, and they had to own the outcome of their choice. And God said, you're going to wander in the wilderness for the next 40 years until this generation dies. And so in Numbers chapter 9, we are given the description of what it meant for them to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. Now, as we step into this, I want you to think about your favorite place to sit in your home. Whatever your dwelling is, your apartment, in your home, what is the place that you love to sit? What is the place where you feel the most comfortable? You may even wish you were there right now. Numbers chapter 9. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law, was set up, the cloud covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Wherever the cloud settled, the Israelites encamped. At the Lord's command, the Israelites set out, and at his command, they encamped. As long as the cloud stayed over the tabernacle, they remained in camp. Feels pretty easy. You know when to go. You know where you're supposed to sit. You know when you're supposed to encamp, and you know when you're not. And because most of us read the Bible into the way in which we actually live our lives, for those of you who maybe have lived in your same house or your same apartment for more than three or five years, you're probably like, yeah, so every like five years, maybe more, maybe 10, they're in there for 40 years. So, you know, every 15 years, God said, hey, it's time to get up and move somewhere. When the cloud remained over the tabernacle a long time, the Israelites obeyed the Lord's order and did not set out. Sometimes the cloud was over the tabernacle only a few days. At the Lord's command, they wouldn't camp, and then at his command, they would set out. A few days. Anybody in here volunteering to pack up everything and move every few days? Sometimes the cloud stayed only from evening till morning. Now you're more uncomfortable? From evening until morning. They walk all day. They encamp. That means they have to unpack everything. They unpack the tabernacle. They unpack the altars. They unpack all of the poles, the tents. They get all of the animal pens set up. Everything is, this is not like they had like this U-Haul where they could just lower the gate and everything's already in there and they can just walk in and be in there. They're unpacking everything and encamping. And then they go to bed and they wake up and what's going on? The cloud's moving. You finish setting up camp, you go to bed, you're exhausted, you wake up the next morning and you have to pack it all up again and walk and you don't know where. Whether by day or by night, whenever the cloud lifted, they set out. Whether the cloud stayed over the tabernacle for two days or a month or a year, the Israelites would remain in camp and not set out. But when it lifted, they would set out. 
At the Lord's command, they encamped, and at the Lord's command, they set out. They obeyed the Lord's order in accordance with his command through Moses. Who's got control? It's not the people. Like, there's no description of, like, scouting parties. Hey, I think the cloud's going that way. We should go see what's over the hill first. There's no, there's no like, pre-warning. They just have to follow. And, of course, they did it happily, right? Because this is the Bible, and there's no mention of anybody arguing here. Have you met humans before? How many of you love the seat and the row that you sit in? And if the cloud told you to sit in a different seat, you'd be like, heck no. (laughs) But this is the type of life that God has called us to. What is the purpose of what he's doing in Numbers chapter 9? He is reminding the people That not only do they not have control, but he will take care of them no matter what. That even though along the way, I mean, you're walking around the wilderness for 40 years, probably somebody broke a bone at some point. Probably somebody got sick at some point. Probably somebody had a really big argument with somebody else at some point. Probably somebody got a hangnail at some point. I mean, everything that we experience in our lives, they experienced. But it's the reminders of who is actually in control. Because anything else that we try to grab in the midst of that is just pretend control. It's just pretend. We're just chasing the feeling of control. And we're trying to steal from God something that he hasn't given us the right to have. This is the story of the Bible from Genesis chapter 1 through the rest of Scripture. Is humans, us, trying to take from God that which is not rightfully ours. Instead, what he wants to give us is the freedom of experiencing the feeling of knowing that he is in control through the power of his spirit. Because that is where rest and contentment and peace come from. Because though we think that it's all about control, And we try to live inside of this world of pretend control. The opposite of pretend is not real. The opposite of pretend is trust. The question is, do you trust him? When we remember, when we think back, Do we remember the times when we have trusted God, when he has demonstrated to us that he is faithful? We talk a lot in the church about what it is to give our lives to Christ and to to dedicate our lives to him and, and what it is to live for him. But sometimes I think that that's, though that's a good thing to think about, That's a good thing to engage with, and you need to have answers to those questions. 
There is at a step of discipleship a whole nother level at which we need to engage with. And it's not the question of do you give your life to him and do you trust him with your life. It's the question that was given to me a few years ago and I cannot get it out of my head. I think about it literally almost every day. Do I trust God with my death? And this is not some weird thing of like, if you get sick, then ignore medicine. Trust me, sinus infection, I am on meds. This is something wholly different. It's more about do I trust God with the how and the when? Our world only wants to tell us that we need to live in fear. And when we live in fear, we grasp for control everywhere. But God says, trust me and have no fear. Because what do I want to do? I want to say, no, God, like dying, I know it's going to happen at some point, but... My boys are teenagers. There are things I want to experience in their life before I die. So if you could wait until this moment, that'd be great. And actually, if you could wait, if you could wait till after they've gotten married, that'd be awesome. I'd love to meet maybe their wives. Or, or it'd be awesome if I could meet, if they're going to be grandchildren, man, I would love for that to happen. So if you could wait until after that, you know what? There's actually, there's some things that I want Tish and I to experience as a couple places I would love for us to go. Wait until after we go experience those places. Then, then it'll be okay. But ultimately, that's me trying to control the situation. That's me trying to barter with God in something that is not rightfully mine in the first place. Who is it that you actually trust? We can set up altars and we can stack stones. This, this church, this building is an example of a memorial to God and his faithfulness. But in and of itself, it is a building. The church is a people. If you are a believer in Jesus, every time you walk out, that's the wrong way to say that. You are a believer in Jesus. You are, no matter what, a walking memorial to God's faithfulness. Because when we believe in Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes to live inside of us and we are changed from the inside out. The scriptures say that our hearts become a temple of the living God. And so no matter where you go and no matter who you interact with, you are a walking memorial of God's faithfulness because it doesn't matter whether you became a believer when you were three years old or 103 years old. There was a way in which you lived which was against God. And then by grace, he saved you, and now there is a way in which you live that is different. And his faithfulness is the story of that. It is not a story about individuals. It is not a story about a moment. It's a story about a God who loves you. And so we kind of come back to our three columns. How is it that we are living? And, and I've tried to lean into this, and I've tried to lean into filling these out in my life. So I'm going to show you my example. On the notes that you either picked up on your way in or grab one on your way out, these columns are on those notes. And I would love for you to take them and engage with them this week. 
for yourself personally and then maybe for your family. Who I am, what I do, and what is needed. Who I am, the words that mean most to me in my life, never changes. I am a deeply loved sinner. I am saved by the grace of God, by the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But I'm a deeply loved sinner, and it doesn't matter what happens here or here. This never changes because ultimately, he is in control. What do I do? For me and my family, we have a phrase. We simply say that we follow the cloud. We follow the cloud. And yet sometimes it's stressful. And sometimes it's tiring. And sometimes it's exhilarating. But it is always based in remembering that it doesn't matter where we go or what we do or what he is going to have us do. He is the one who is taking us and he is with us. We follow the cloud. We can choose to not follow the cloud. We'll end up wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. What is needed? This is a verse that, that, that I came across some years ago and it's just stuck with me. It's from Micah chapter 6. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil? Shall I, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Because see, the, the people of Israel, they had all of, all of these rules and regulations about how they were to worship and how they were to sacrifice and, and come to the altar. But God had set those up in order to help them understand the posture that they were supposed to come. And the people had ignored the posture they were supposed to come with. They had just started to do it out of habit. They were just doing it rotely. And, it, and they were not actually engaging with their heart, mind, body, and spirit. And so through the prophet Micah, God is challenging the people. And he's saying, what are you going to do? Are you going to bring 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Are you going to go even further? And are you, are you going to sacrifice your firstborn son? As if that's what I want. No, he has shown you, O oh mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly. And to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. Who I am? A deeply loved sinner. What do I do? I follow the cloud. What is needed because of that? Act justly, love mercy, and walk humbly. This is how my chart's filled out. How would you fill yours out? That's my challenge on an intentional step for you this week. How would you fill this out? What is the vice, that thing that you continue to go to that makes you want to take control? And what do you need to do in your life to exhibit to God and to demonstrate to him of that deep trust? That as he has been faithful in the past parts of your life, that he still is faithful today and he will always be faithful because he is a God who does not change. And he is a God who loves us deeply.